Hello everyone, my name is Zach Redrup, this is the It's Not A Phase podcast, and on this episode I am joined by 18 Visions frontman James Hart to take a deep dive on their 2002 album, Vanity. The band have been celebrating the record's 20th anniversary this year, so I spoke with James about his time writing and recording the album, how he looks back on its lyrics and his vocal abilities at the time, being branded a fashion core band, their choice to re-record the album this year, and loads more. Now, if you enjoyed this or any other episode of the podcast and you want to show your support, there's a few ways that you can do that. Number one, leave a rating and review wherever you're listening to this. It takes just a few seconds and it really does help. Number two, share this on your social media, whether that be Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever. Or number three, if you want to go the extra mile, you can pay a little bit each month to join the Patreon, and in return you'll get access to episodes early along with some of our perks, or you can pick up some merch from the store. All the links to that and the podcast socials can be found at itsnotaphase.co.uk. That's itsnotaphase.co.uk. And now with all that out of the way, let's jump right into this week's episode of It's Not A Phase. What's up, everybody? Thanks for joining me on this episode. It's not a phase with James Hart of 18 Visions. And we're going to do a full unpacking and in-depth dive into their album, Vanity. First off, how are you doing, man? Good, man. Just uh, enjoying my days off, you know? Just chilling uh, right now. Been trying to just slowly get back in like the zone of my normal life with work and just my normal routine. Uh, Going out on the road, even if for like you know, 10 days or even five or six days, it just totally takes you out of that. And just getting back into it is, is tough. And we did so much, it's such like a short amount of time. Like everything was so compact. Like, you know, we we went out and did, I think nine or 10 shows, which was, I think 12 days of being gone uh, or 14 actually, because we had two days off. Yeah. It was almost two weeks. Um, Come home for like a week and then fly back out, do four more shows. It's six days of the travel. And for me, like, you know, I came home and like went straight back into work and it just the shift of like, you know, I told you before we got on, I wake up usually around 5 a.m. And like I have like a set routine and the shift from waking up at like two or going to sleep at two or three a.m. on tour and, you know, coming home and like trying to get right back in like the zone and like work. And because I've Miss so much work. I have clients that just need to get in and, you know, I'm working 10, 11 hour days, like six days straight with like no rest. And yeah, it's just brutal. So it's taken me, I don't know, I guess it's been about three weeks now. Like I'm kind of like, this is my third week of like actually getting like kind of back into like normality uh, for me. So I think the first week I came home, I just went back in and worked and just kind of like tried to chill and let my body relax. Yeah, like I say, it's just kind of like trying to get back into a routine, sorting your kind of body clock out. And like you say, kind of just catching up on things that you literally couldn't do on the road because yeah. you were on the road. Yeah. So the shows are fun and they're great, but it, you know, it takes me out of like, you know, my element at home. Yeah. And your home comforts and stuff like that as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Talking about vanity, let's kind of like set the scene just a little bit before vanity started to become a thing. So a few years prior, you, you guys signed to Trustkill Records, and then through that label, you put out your EP No Time for Love, and then the Until the Ink Monks Out album, and then obviously the Best Of, which was kind of like a, a compilation where you re- recorded some of your older songs, and also you had the, the newer song at the start. In your opinion, what was kind of like, what was the hardcore scene and metalcore scene kind of looking like, in your opinion, back then? Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty diverse uh, musically, so... Like the metalcore bands, I feel like a lot of them didn't like really sound the same. Everyone was kind of doing their own thing, you know, taking influences from other bands that they listened to uh, when they were younger. And, you know, obviously some of the bands had the same influences, but like a lot of the bands sounded like really different. And it it gave like a really cool vibe to the shows. And there wasn't like metalcore like subgenres yet where it's like... I kind of see like now, like there's, it's almost like mall metalcore for us over here. If you're familiar with like the the company Hot Topic, which is like, it's been like a a staple in like shopping malls here for like, gosh, almost three decades. I feel like it started out as this like industrial goth thing. And then it got a little bit more and more metal and then more mainstream. And then it got super mainstream, but they wanted to stay edgy and, you know, they were bringing in like merchandise from all these like 
bands that were on MTV. And uh, I just feel like that whole like brand of metalcore that's kind of out there now and then kind of really started to surface in the mid 2000s is, is like really its own thing. So to me, there's a big difference between that modern metalcore and what kind of came out of like the late 90s, early 2000s. And there's just more for me a more like raw like pure organic vibe to like the music and the lyrics you know i think bands were a little bit more unstructured back then which kind of gave it like a coolness to it and then you know the new the newer bands are just very very like formula as far as like the songs or songs go like they follow formula as far as like the song structure and you know the delivery of it and I feel like it's just kind of become a little bit more like almost like computer generated sense or manufactured, which that's fine. You know, there's some cool riffs out there and some cool bands still, but it just, it doesn't have the same like pureness that it did from its predecessors. And what was it kind of like being a part of Trust Kill Records? Cause you know, that label was kind of quite, a, uh, you know, kind of like a, a pinnacle of like metalcore back then and, and that kind of scene. Yeah, it was really awesome. Um, we we got a lot of attention and we got a lot of care and promotion like put into the band. Originally, you know, we had tried to sign to Victory Records. We got turned down from Victory. We got turned down from Hydrahead. We got turned down from Ferret. And those were the labels that had the bands that like we really, really loved, like Earth Crisis, Strife, Snapcase, Integrity, Bloodlet on Victory. And then um, Hydra Head had like, you know, Cave In and I think some Botch and like those really cool, like more like groundbreaking, like metalcore bands that we really looked up to. And yeah. then Ferret had like Disembodied and Torn Apart, which were more of like, I guess our peers, you know, we were playing shows with them at a younger age. And like, you know, we were, you know, kind of all the same age and kind of came all up at the same time. And none of those labels wanted us. And we were familiar with Trust Kill, but the roster wasn't like blowing us away at the time. There were some cool bands on there, but like we gravitated more towards like the metal stuff or the heavier stuff. Yeah. And they weren't quite there yet. And so it was really cool to, you know, get picked up by that label and then kind of come up with like Poison the Well and Walls of Jericho and then kind of create this like, trust kill brand of like metalcore in the early 2000s and you know it was really cool to be a part of that loved those bands too so i was really really glad to see some bands that we really liked and loved like come onto the label with us and like bands that we can go out and tour with and you know play shows with and you know maybe we're on like a, a cd sampler with these bands back then and you know it like all all of the bands to together kind of like fit you know as, as it feels like a part of something yeah, I guess you kind of grew with the label as well, like at the same time the label grew because you were with them even when you put out Obsession, right? Yeah. And then this when you went to Epic for the self-titled after that. Yeah, correct. Yeah. 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 So, you know, until the, run, uh, the ink runs out, got quite a lot of like attention for you guys. That was like kind of your first, you know, big push in, in the scene. And, you know, that album's still kind of well-praised and respected today. What was kind of your mindset as a band then having just put that record out and kind of thinking about how you were going to follow that up. Yeah, I think, I don't necessarily think we put too much thought into like what we were going to do next and how we were going to do it. I just know that when we were writing that record, it, the same way we wrote that record was the same way we wrote Vanity, which was in the studio, like in the rehearsal studio, just bringing riffs together and yeah. having to put those parts over and over and over to memorize them because we didn't really have pre-production capability yet like the guys i don't i don't know if pro tools was around yet but ken and keith weren't really diving into pro tools until obsession and so we weren't able to do our own demos so we weren't able to like really sit and listen back to the music um we were just playing it and you know there's something obviously really pure and organic about that but then to a certain extent you, you kind of run into the problem well, at least i run into the problem of like how do i how do i remember what I'm doing on each part, I've got these lyrics, but how do I remember like the vocal patterns? And I'm sure some of that changes in the studio, but then you're just writing so much music. There's like guitar part after guitar part after guitar part 
all the vocals, everything is different. Nothing really repeats itself, which is cool to a sense, but you know, it can also like, you can also like lack connectivity with people because they're just trying to digest five minutes of like 15 parts going on. Right. Which, which like I said, can be fun and cool, but we also started to, during the Until the Ink process later on, start to incorporate more rock parts, more like heavier type of like rock riffs. And we threw some cowbell in there. I think, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. I think that was like an influence of like some of like the like Motley Crue stuff we were listening to. And then like the Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Stone Temple Pilot stuff. So it was, I think, later on in that writing process where we really started to kind of like dive into non-metal and hardcore influences, yeah. which would obviously we would take into like the Vanity record. Yeah, yeah, and, and of course, between until Ink runs out and Vanity, you you know, like I said before, you put the the best of album out, and there's a new song on there that at the start, Motionless and White, which is kind of where fans for the first time start hearing you kind of you know exploring more the melody and the, the clean singing and stuff like that at the time do you kind of remember how fans kind of took that for that song i think they really took to it because yeah. i want to say opposite of december was out already i think yeah yeah i think it was yeah i think that came out around the same time maybe even on the same day as uh until the ink so the metalcore scene was starting to I guess, like, accept, like, clean vocals, right? And for us, it was just something like there was these open, big open, like, kind of chords that were, like, melodic. And it's like, hey, like, let's try singing over this. Like, why not? And I feel like that's that was the part in the song that people really connected to when we would play it live. And obviously, there's some, like, vocal stuff that, like, does some repeating that you can kind of, like, grab onto. But that was the part in the song and almost in the whole set where everybody was like going for the mic. Right. Right. And that's was like, okay, that just kind of like reaffirmed like what we were doing was like, it worked for us and like, it was cool and our fans liked it. And like the vibe was there for us. So we kind of took that, I think into vanity and just ran with it. And what did it kind of feel like for you? Because obviously before that you're like, you're screaming and stuff like that. And then when you're doing these cleans, it's far more like, vulnerable and more exposed and stuff and like i say you, you people will then notice more if you're hitting the notes if you're hitting the right pitch and all that kind of stuff yeah. i imagine that was kind of at the time you first exploring this on your own is kind of daunting yeah it was i mean i had always kind of like sang along to like the rock stuff that i listened, grew up listening to and yeah. so i i kind of felt like I, I was able to execute it but I really, as a singer, I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't really know how to sing like that back then, uh, like technically. And it's fine when you're recording something, right? Because you can just do take after take until you get it right. Yeah. And you're not in the middle of like, I just screamed like four songs before that. And now we're in the middle of the set. And here comes this clean vocal and my vocals, my, like my, like, I don't know how to like really transition to that because I've been doing, going so hard one way and then to completely change and flip it yeah. and start you know, singing like this, like clean melodic vocal. It, it's, uh, you kind of have to figure it out as you go. Did that kind of, that mindset and kind of you learning how that was kind of going when you first started like touring and playing that song. And then even when you started doing like the vanity songs, did you kind of at the beginning learn to do that, the songs of the more cleanings at the start of the set so that it was less of a strain? Yeah, we would definitely, I think, put the songs where like, and again, too, like it's, it's my fault for like writing some of this stuff, right? Like I said earlier, like putting vocals upon vocals upon vocals, like writing over every part, not giving myself a chance to like breathe within the song or yeah. like let it really breathe and like kind of shine. So some of the stuff, especially on Vanity, the notes are higher and it's all fine and well in the studio, but then like, you know, you're saying you get to, you get to playing them in the set and stuff becomes more difficult. So you definitely try to st strategically place the songs that are vocally like easier towards the front. Yeah. I still try and do that to this day. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, a way of doing it. Yeah. Because there's just, 
there's just stuff that I've, I've written um, in the past and currently where it's just like, you know, it's in the studio, it's one thing, but like doing it live, it's, it's, it, it can be pretty tough. I don't know if you know this, but obviously the song Motionless in White, a band kind of took that name and inspired them to call themselves Motionless in White. Have you ever listened to them? What, what do you think of them? They, yeah, awesome. Awesome, yeah. dude. I think it's great. Yeah, I mean, really, it's an honor because look at the trajectory of that band and like, the huge. You know, it's done this. So, you know, to, I mean, not that we played a part in it, but just to kind of have something of 18 visions live on with a band of like, of that magnitude is, is really cool to me. Yeah. So, you know, it, you come now to like, when you're starting to write and record Vanity, you're like in your early twenties at this point, where was kind of your your mindset at where you want to kind of take the band and also what you kind of want to bring lyrically with the themes and ideas throughout, throughout the new record, which would have been become vanity. Yeah. I think lyrically um, I was going through like a lot of personal like issues with relationships with not just a girl, but friends as well. You know, you're in your early twenties and you grew up like going to shows and you're in school with some friends and everyone's straight edge and everyone kind of thinks a certain way and everyone's like really really connected through like hardcore and to see some of those friends kind of like you know abandon and branch out and just completely fall off and you don't see them anymore and it's yeah. like what is that person doing that was like at that age that was my first like exposure to dealing with that you know we're out we're all out of school and you know that's when people start to kind of go their separate ways but yeah that was my first real experience with that so coping with that yeah, was was also something for me, uh, along with like, obviously, like, personal relationship with girls, or a girl. And then, for me, like, I, I just always have written off of the music, like, what is the music telling me to do? Is the music telling me to scream? Or is it telling me to like, sing with like a clean vocal? And because there's these, you know, newer, like heavy, like rock riffs that are, you know, maybe you would hear on like Sonic Death Monkey, like later on the album that are, you know, the parts started like repeating more and it's got this like really cool, like gritty, like grungy rock part that's heavy because it's really down tuned and I can sing over it or I can scream over it. But what's, you know, I want to sing over it because I can now. Right. So I just found myself like leaning more towards like clean vocals and, because I think too, it was new to me. It was really, really fun to experiment with that stuff. So I wanted to do more of it. So I guess it's kind of like when you get, when you buy anything new, you want to kind of like test out and try it. It's like a, a new toy, isn't it? You know, you want to yeah. implement it as much as you can because that's all you're really focusing on. It's new to you. Yeah. And, and then, you know, fast forward 20 years later and writing new music, you know, there might be a similar part or a melodic part that's given to me. And, you know, my initial intent, like, response is like i should sing clean over this but now i'm like i've done all that fuck it i'm gonna do something totally different and like keith will hear it for the first time he's like oh i didn't think you would do that there you know that's yeah. really cool um and i like that now because you know fast forward it brings like a little element of surprise with the band you know yeah. you know you know oh here's another rock part it's gonna have clean vocals it's like you're not gonna get that every time yeah i mean i guess as well if you're if you're doing when you were doing Valentine, you know, you're kind of like doing all these cleans for the first time, I guess, as well as kind of like being infatuated with, you know, this, this new ability of doing cleans, you're also a practicing in a way because you want to kind of improve the more you do it, the better you get. And then, you know, if you're kind of forcing yourself to have these clean parts in the song, then you're kind of later down the line, forcing yourself to have to do those clean parts live. So then you're kind of thinking future self is going to get better live doing these cleans as well. Yeah. Which was tough because I didn't necessarily get better live. Like, sure, I could hit the notes, but I, I didn't know how to technically sing. So I was doing a lot of like strain on my vocals and like yeah. it was hurting me more than like the screaming was. And really, I didn't find out how how shitty of a singer I was until we were doing the obsession demos and the pre-production and Mud Rock's like, dude, you got to take vocal lessons. <laughs> so that's like a couple of years later then, two whole years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like you know, I'm not hitting the notes. Like I don't have sustainability. Like I'm just, you know, I'm either just a little bit sharp or I'm a little bit flat or, you know, I'm rushing. My timing is like not, my timing's like not on. Right. And like, those are things like I never, 
you know, I'm not music. I wasn't musically trained. Um, I never really played guitar or an instrument. So like, I, you know, I never really had to like record to like a click or a metronome and everything before was like super raw. And like, like I said, man, like when we were right in the studio, it was just kind of like go with the flow and then obsession. You're like, all right, we've got like demos. Hey, why don't you rewrite the second half of that verse? And this is coming from my bandmates, right? This is before pre-production. We're kind of doing our own stuff. And so like now I'm being challenged by my bandmates to write, you know, different parts and like maybe like push myself more. So that was the first time I really pushed myself to like be a better singer and a better writer. And I put like more thought, even more thought into like, how can I make this song better? And I felt like with Obsession, there was a little bit more pressure on me because the songs were shorter, they were simpler in structure, and there was less parts. So vocally, I felt like I had to deliver even more. It couldn't just be the same thing over and over again. Yeah, so that was definitely a challenge for me there. With Vanity, it was just like, fucking just go and do your thing. and Go wild. <laughs> yeah. Much, yeah. Yeah. And then like you say, Obsession, like the songs are shorter that they're as a whole more melodically driven like if you look at a song like i let go or even like you know the, the chorus in tower of snakes which is one of the heavier songs on that album you can definitely tell like your vocals between the stuff on vanity to that song on its own is just a definite jump yeah and that was vo- that was really vocal training and like working with a like really working with a producer that like had experience like real experience working with like top level bands i think yeah. he had just on city of evil for avenged and he i think he had done like a big god smack record or something so you know i really even though i fucked with him a lot in the studio like i really took what mud rock would say and like you know apply it yeah like he was no you knew what he's talking about he's doing it in your and the yeah. band's best interest yeah. yeah so you know being 20 years younger writing writing vanity and, and the lyrics that you wrote and obviously your mindset how do you kind of feel about those songs now in terms of you know the, the words you wrote the lyrics you wrote because you know if I look at things when I was doing like reviews and stuff when I look back at old reviews that I do I'm like this is this is garbage <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean I'm like why did I even write that one and I couldn't even think of you know being in a band and you know 20 years later looking back at what I wrote I mean where, where yeah. what, what do you feel about like that kind of stuff I like, so, I mean, I just re-recorded everything, you know, a few months ago and then sang all these songs live. And for the most part, I didn't really find myself saying like, why did I write this? I like really, really didn't, which is good later. Right. I think it was just, like I said, it was more or less like, man, I'm trying to fit too much into like this five minute song or like, I'm trying to fit too much into like this part. I don't need to do all of this here. And so there's a a couple spots on the new recording where I I laid back a little bit and like, you know, it doesn't need this. It like, it doesn't need this now. Like it, the part will translate better. It will sound better. So let's do it this way. And yeah, it worked out. Otherwise lyrically, I'm pretty, pretty okay with everything. Yeah. 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 I mean, you definitely on this, on the re-recording, which we'll we'll talk about a bit more in in a bit, like you can definitely tell you've left some space for certain songs. Like if we just look at you broke like glass, in the original recording, you're doing that repeated part. And as I joke at the sight of you, whereas yeah. on the recorded version, you just on that kind of second pairing in a, in the chorus, you're like, as I choke and just let the, the rest of the, you know, the song breathe a bit. Yeah. So yeah, I think I started doing that live uh, when we first came back just because it just felt like live. It just felt good. That part can just kind of like groove and just be heavy. And so, yeah, there's, liberties i took with with the new recording to do stuff like that and just you know yeah looking back it's just too much in the small amount of space it's given you know you're too, you're too excited man that's what it was right <laughs> so and you know on the on the album as well you've got a few like different movie samples did you guys like have any trouble trying to get clearance and approval to, to have them on the record back then no no right. not at all i don't think it was until obs- Obsession, I think that I don't know if there's any on Obsession. I don't think no. I think Obsession and the self-titled the two you don't have any on because I think the label told us no, we couldn't do that. Right. And uh, now we don't. I mean, we don't care now. You know, we'll just. I'm not sure if Rise told us no with the comeback record or not, but we just did it anyways. We're just like we're part of the band, you know. Like this is like like we've always done this. So yeah, the movie quotes are always fun. It just especially when you play them live, you know, it just kind of tips off what's coming. 
people in the crowd like to quote the movie along with it, which is always fun. Yeah. Did you not get any like, because um, obviously these, these songs are like 20 years old now. Did you not get any contact down the line by whoever made these films or anything like that? Nothing. Never. No. Got away with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, back at, back then, like having movie quotes in, in metalcore songs and, and heavy songs was kind of a lot more like normal. Like it was a loads of bands did it. I was hearing that stuff from hardcore bands from like the early 90s. So never thought it was a big deal. Yeah. Like you say, it kind of like adds a little nuance to the songs, I think, sometimes. Oh, totally. Yeah. And it's always fun too, like hearing something on a record for the first time and hearing the sample and trying to figure out, okay, I know that. Where is that from? Or you go and look it up. Like a lot of people have been like, dude, I never knew what, what River's Edge was until I heard the sample. And so I went out and looked it up and I watched the movie and I love that movie. And I can't tell you how many DVDs of that film I've signed. They should be giving you money for the um, royalties. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> and you worked with Greg, Greg Collar as the producer for Vanity. What yeah. was it kind of like working with him in the studio? And what do you kind of think he brought to Vanity that perhaps wouldn't have been there if he wasn't around? What if he wasn't working on it with you? Probably just better tones, really. I don't fully remember uh, recording that record a whole lot, to be honest with you. It was just like more. Everything was like one or two takes, right? And like, this was like, okay, do that again. Okay, do that again. Okay, do that again. Like, right. you know, I was like trying to get a better take from me, right? And so I think for me, that was that was pretty much it. Otherwise, there wasn't not too much I can remember that he changed with me. And I think otherwise, mostly it would just be t- like tones, getting like better tones than what we were getting before. Well, it was around this time as well with with 18 Visions where you guys not only obviously experimented in terms of your sound on the album, but also in terms of like the visual aesthetics. For some reason, people decided to call you guys like fashion gore and stuff like that, which is still a stupid term <laughs> to me anyway. Because obviously you wouldn't typically just wear the usual cliche hardcore stuff. You wouldn't just wear like a, a black vest and, and camo shorts and stuff like that, which in turn kind of turned a lot of heads for you guys, I think. And then looking back now, it kind of helped inspire some other bands that kind of followed suit and wore like the same kind of stuff. Like if you think about bands like, to an extent, Atreyu, who kind of came up at the same time as you guys. And even if you look at stuff like Early Avenged and Escape the Fate, stuff like that. Yeah, I think for us, it was, uh, first of all, like Ken and I worked at Banana Republic. So getting like nicer clothes was sometimes cheaper for us because we were just getting these like massive discounts. I think we got 50% off. We would just buy whatever was in black. Um, And then we, I think we were just into the way, like, you know, I was a hairstylist as well, coming up as a hairstylist. So I was into hair and fashion and looking at like, some of the bands from like the eighties and like the way that they were glammed out was cool, but like Motley Crue did it in like a darker way, which was awesome. And like how to incorporate some of that into like the image. And then I always thought like unbroken, a band from San Diego always looked like really, really awesome and really different from all the other bands that were playing Um, refused, uh, had a cool like visual aesthetic to them. And then like a lot of singers that I liked, I kind of like gravitated towards like what they were wearing on stage and it was just like very different. And then I think we kind of came up with an idea of like having like a full band, like visual aesthetic where we just wore all black or like black with like a red shirt and like matching ties. And we had like our logo screen printed on the ties. And it just, I think we just kind of wanted to set ourselves apart from all the other bands. I think, you know, it's stupid that people care so much about the look of a band to the point where it might, you know, potentially turn them off from listening to them. When if you think about the whole history of rock and metal, looks are like everything. You look at a band like Kiss, you look at a band like Slipknot, or even like Ghost. Aesthetics is everything. That's that's the whole part of it. Well, I think think now people are a, a lot more a lot more open to the way a band looks now. Like they don't, they don't really care. Um, And I, you know, I think it's great because we can all like, you know, hardcore has always been a place and a community where I always thought like you were accepted because you weren't accepted 
in like the normal real world, right? We belong to this like underground community where like there was like straight edge kids, there weren't straight edge kids, there was vegans and vegetarians and metal kids and emo kids and punk kids and just like straight up like hardcore kids. And everybody came together and went to these shows. And I think a lot of that had to do with like having like a mixed build show, right? Like a yeah. hardcore band, a metalcore band, an emo band, like everything was like mixed right and like I, I felt like that was like a place where you could just kind of go and be yourself and then something happened and or it wasn't cool to, to be different anymore and like if you were a hardcore kid or a straight edge kid you had to look and be a certain way and that was just like that was just never me i just have always like been into what i've been into and yeah. i've always looked the way i want to and i'll say that I, I definitely look like an asshole at some point <laughs> but you know, looking back at least, right? I mean, who doesn't in their 20s, you know? Looking back, you're like, man, I look absolutely ridiculous. Like, <laughs> what was I doing there? What was I wearing there? But I mean, anybody can say that about themselves at any point in their life, right? Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I think today, you know, especially being out on the road with a band like See You Space Cowboy and a band like Wrist Meat Razor really kind of shows like how far the hardcore and like metalcore community has come and like really like accepting and like being open arms to like anybody and how they are as a person um, or like what they identify as or who they want to be, you know? And I think that that's, that was an important factor. I feel like got lost for a while. I think especially nowadays, you know, the way a band looks as well, doesn't necessarily kind of portray how they sound. Like, you know, I mentioned ghosts before, if you look at them, they look like they'll be like a death metal band, like Behemoth or something like that. But then you listen to them, it's like listening to Spooky Abba, which is, which is crazy. It's like, this doesn't match, but whatever. Sure. And, you know, you, you kind of changed how you looked aesthetically in terms of the, the way that the album looked. I mean, if you look at any metal album or hardcore album in the in the 2000s when Vanity came out, or I can't really think of any now that ever had like, like a, a, has a bright pink, hot pink cover in, like it stands out like and when you think about it you think of that hot pink and i mean did you did you kind of like push in the, the boundaries a little bit in terms of how you sounded but also how you kind of represented as a band you obviously looked how you wanted to look but did you also kind of like ruffling feathers a little bit um no i don't think we like ever like tried to like intentionally like piss people off by the way that we sounded or the way that we looked or the way that we like marketed the band you know i don't think that, that was ever like the intention uh with the cover we just wanted something that was like really, really eye popping. And we had gone through like a bunch of different, like early ideas of like a layout and like a concept for the artwork. And they just didn't like, they just didn't work and they just didn't translate to like what we wanted. So we ended up going for something like super, super clean and super simple. And I think the idea of the hot pink kind of came from like, Hey, let's have like, when this CD is on shelves at the music stores, it's going to like catch people's eye. Like it's going to be bright pink and it's going to stand out. And I think that that's really kind of like what we wanted to use it as is more of like a marketing tool. It kind of ties in with one of the lyrics in the song where, you know, you're saying like this hot pink is way too bright. So it kind of ties into that as well. Sure. You know, all these new changes in like style and sound between until the ink runs out and vanity. I mean, I, I can I can see the progression, but you know, I guess at the time some people didn't quite get what you were doing in, in this new chapter. You know, you, you've obviously brought in new fans and stuff with vanity and showed who would the diehards were at the same time. Was there any time during that period where you kind of worried that you may lose fans because of the, the changes you've made? Yeah, I think like going out on tour with like other hardcore bands and yeah. like being mocked, right? having stuff thrown at us. Yeah. Just being made fun of. I think that that was like, like, Oh shit. Like there's going to be a lot of people that don't like us. It's weird. <laughs> you know? And like, you know, I think people coming up to you at shows like, dude, like I really loved until the ink runs out and best of was cool. This is like, I, you know, I can't handle this. And then at the same time, 20 years later, you get some people coming up to us at shows and saying like, you know what? Like, when it came out, I wasn't ready. For it. And like, I didn't I actually didn't like it when it came out. And yeah. it wasn't until years later that I went back and listened to it for some reason or another. 
or it got forced upon them and they were forced to listen to it, that they were just like, yeah, actually, I like this. This is cool. And so it tells me that a lot of like the initial like response and like backlash was more or less about like maybe like the way that we looked and that we did want to do something different right away. Yeah. And it wasn't like they weren't fans enough to like give it a really, really, really fair shot. Right. For example, like I bought, like I'm a big Chris Cornell fan. Like I celebrate all of his shit and I bought the scream solo album when it came out and I put it on and I was like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) You know, it's produced by Timbaland, you know, which I found out later. And like there's songs co-written with Justin Timberlake. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? This is like some weird, like kind of like pop album with Chris Cornell singing on it and very minimal guitars. I'm like, this is like fucking whack. Like I'm not into this. And I listened to the whole thing on tour. Um, This is like in 2009, I think, 2008, 2009. And then a couple days later, I put it back on and I was like, okay, like now that I know what this is, I'm going to listen to it again. And I fell in love with it. And I found like so much genius in that record, you know? But had I not been a diehard Chris Cornell fan and just kind of picked it up as a casual Chris Cornell fan, uh, I probably wouldn't have given it a second chance at all. I think I think I find myself doing that more and more and more with bands that I really, really love. If something doesn't hit me the first time, I, I definitely go back and give it a second, third, fourth listen and like really try to see what's going on with it or why maybe it didn't hit me the first time. And you know, I usually end up coming around to like really love and appreciate it. I mean, some albums and uh, growers and even some albums I listen to, it didn't quite connect with me until I've seen that band live. So there's, there's a UK band called The Excerpts. They had this album called Scatterbrain and I listened to it and I was like, I just, I just don't get it. And then I saw them live, went back to the album and I was like, this is, in- this is like incredible. So I don't, I don't quite understand why it works, but yeah, I enjoy it. So <laughs> I'm not complaining. So, I mean, shortly after you guys finished recording Vanity, that's when Brandon left the band. Is that right? Yeah, I think we did like a tour with him maybe or two. We hadn't done our our headliner yet. Our headliner was the first tour we did without him. Yeah. Right, right. So obviously he left to do kind of Bleeding Through full time. Yeah, he was just, he was just way, way too into that band and really not into what we were doing anymore. Mm. So we just felt like it was a good time to part ways. Best for both parties, really. Yeah. Did, did him leaving throw any spanner in the works at the time? Because I think from then you kind of had just the one guitarist for a little bit, right? Yeah, no, we did. Yeah, so I think we did the all of, the, all of Vanity touring with just Keith, the rest of it, one guitar player, which was, I think, a bit challenging uh, because we've always written for two guitar players. Uh, as far as writing goes, it didn't really impact much because Ken was starting to write music for the band. And I know he contributed on Vanity and Until the Ink, but it just brought him more into the fold as a writer on Obsession. Yeah. Even more so. I think it just gave Ken like the sense of like freedom where, okay, I can really write more and actually have it used. So he just had a bit more of an opportunity to kind of put his contributions forward. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I heard recently, I think he was on another podcast, Brandon said that around that time, you and him were asked to potentially join Killswitch Engage, but this is before like Howard Jones obviously took, took obviously the, the vocal bits. Is that, is that true or? Um, I don't think so. Right. Okay. I don't think it's true. Uh, I remember it being talked about that they needed a new singer. And I mean, neither one of us lived on the East Coast. For me, yeah, I was never, I was never like asked to try out or join the band. I don't think he was either. Uh, I remember we were friends with uh, Blood Has Been Shed, and at what point I don't know at what point the band approached Howard, but I want to say Howard was out visiting, and it was talked about, and I said you should join that band, like you should sing for that band. Obviously, it it worked out for him. Um, yeah, but yeah, I don't, yeah, for me, no, I don't ever recall. So it was a long time ago as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm not a teller of tall tales either. So. <laughs> well, you had obviously speaking of Howard, you had him on the, the record, right? You did guest vocals, yeah. then you had 
Alex from Atreyu at the time. Different Alex. Different uh, Alex, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of my friends, yeah. And then we had this guy that was singing for the band Zeo for, I think he sang for him. Corey. Corey, Corey yeah. yeah. And another friend of ours, Ryan, that sang for Burn It Down. What was it like working with them and bringing them on board? Uh, cool. I think back then, like, there was a lot of, like, you know, guest vocals and features going on. And so, yeah, it was cool. We were always wanting to, like, bring people in and, you know, collaborate or, you know, have them, like, just, hey, you want to sing on our song? Like, it'd be cool to, like, feature you on this part. Oh, you're in the area. Like, oh, you're going to be out here. Like, let's get you on the record type thing, you know? Yeah. It's it's pretty cool because I've, I've kind of seen that come around a little bit more recently. Yeah, there was a there was a period between like not long after you guys you know kind of broke out and until like a few years ago where there was barely any features in rock and metal and I don't know why it was just deemed like taboo. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why. <laughs> but yeah, like I say, it's getting a bit more like accepted now, which is good because I think it helps everyone. Like, all what's that saying? All a rising tide helps all ships or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good for cross promotion too. You know, like oh, like I just heard. Keith Buckley sing on this Knocked Loose song, like yeah. who's Knocked Loose? So I'm going to check him out, you know? I mean, everybody knows who Knocked Loose is, but yeah. as an example. Or you, you um, not longer did a, a guest feature with Pressure Cracks. Yeah, yeah. It was super awesome. So I, yeah, I got asked to do that. I liked the band a lot and they let me like write my own part and my own lyrics and yeah, super fun. Yeah. And even more, um, even more recently, you did that. I can't remember the name of the, the band is or the group. Is that more like synth electro track? Oh, yeah, all, yeah, all the damn vampires. Yeah, yeah. so I've been friends with uh, with Davey for quite a while, and he wanted me to like write and record a song with them. And I was super into the idea because it was just a different type of challenge for me. I've never sang like that on a record before. Yeah, uh, or like written to a song like that. So it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, new territory for you. Yeah. yeah. Anytime I can do something new vocally or as a writer, uh, really piques my interest. You just need a rap track now and you've done all of it. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously we mentioned it earlier as part of the 20th anniversary of this record, you re-recorded the whole album, but you re-recorded Vanity and you brought like glass two years prior in 2020, I think. Yeah. Keith wanted to mess around with it and just do it i think he was starting to get into like really trying to like do production and yeah. like you know he's he's been doing our demos for like decades right and they've always sounded really good so remember why we re-recorded those songs initially um i think he just kind of like wanted to re-record them just because right. uh, and experiment with them we ended up putting out um, was it maybe because we reissued the record or we issued the vinyl I'm not sure. Either way, um, yeah, he just wanted to re-record them, and so we did, and it, it was cool. And then he recorded the Inferno EP and then the 1996 cover LP, and everything. Mm-hmm. He's just been like recording everything, and it's just been getting better and better and better. And I think for him, he, I think you know how it came about was we needed uh, drum tracks and guitar tracks for uh, and bass tracks for like for the live show. So our drummer, so Trevor would, would want like the full song sent into his ears. Right. And so having like the guitar, bass and vocals like sent to his ears, like made it easier for him to play along with the song. Um, And so we were just like, well, he's got to do that. So let's just like add some more vocals in there and like, you know, kind of tweak with it and, you know, digitally release it. And I think the same thing happened for, this vanity tour is like, well, I'm already going to be recording like bass tracks for sure. And probably drums. So why not just do the whole thing? And then, yeah. Okay. Which I was initially pushing for the whole thing a couple of years ago to do, Um, you know, I think we, we might've done fashion show too, um, but just didn't get very far with it uh, a few years ago. I think it was just a lot for him at the time. Mm. And I think now he's a lot more comfortable in like his production skills and you know getting that sounding like really 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 awesome that you know is a lot i think easier for us to do so the re-recording kind of came about because you wanted to have these these tracks for live then is that right that's that's kind of how it you did the rest of the record after those two tracks yeah i think so yeah we went we went back and re-recorded those two as well so Mm -hmm. those are an entirely different recording um you know, those I think are the original tuning of B and these are now in A, all these songs are in A, which is right. what we're writing and, and playing everything in. So 
I think that too is like interesting of like exploring these songs and making them a little bit different, putting a little twist on stuff here and there, hearing them even heavier, drop tunes, uh, even lower. Yeah. So just, I think too, is like, Hey, well, if we're going to go out and play shows, let's record everything. Let's like do another vinyl issue. And so that's where we kind of came up with the idea of like having like one LP with the original recording and then the other LP with the new recordings Mm -hmm. uh, and and putting that out. And it's always fun for us to release vinyl. We do that all ourselves. So we get excited about putting a physical product out there. Well, I guess that kind of explains why it's not, it's not quite the entire album music. We've not got the kind of like the ballad tracks, gorgeous and um, loving autumn. So I had asked him about, that and it, you know if he wanted to do those songs and it just it didn't seem like super interesting to him or to me we didn't really feel like we wanted to play those songs live either it just it would have felt forced for us and i think taking some of the fun out of it yeah you just wanted to the, the boss of the walls version of vanity really pretty much yeah <laughs> Was there any struggle kind of trying to get the rights to, to re-record and release that? Because obviously you put it through Trusca. I don't know you had to sign off on certain things. No. So, yeah. So Trustkill went like basically folded like years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So our entire back catalog was owned by InGrooves and we were owed a lot of money and royalties. So rather than have to deal with royalties and like us hiring an attorney uh, and going through all the legal process of getting all of that. We just own the rights to all of the trust kill stuff. Um, So we can kind of do with it as we please. And I think that there's actually like a 10 year clause where you can actually re-record the music and re-release it because it's been re-recorded. I think so. I don't even know if we would need that because they're new recordings. If trust kill did still own stuff or, in grooves or whatever yeah right okay well that makes things simple for you then like you say you kind of skip the whole legal route that way as well which is expensive and (laughs) time consuming yeah the only tricky one for us i think would be the self-titled record if we ever wanted to do a vinyl issue of that we don't actually have the rights to that one i don't know how we would go about that we'd probably have to find a label that could get the licensing and and do something and just kind of issue it and just deal with it that way Yeah. yeah And on this recording, you kind of, for the most part, you've kind of stuck true to the to the original. Whereas, you know, there's obviously a few different like nuances, slightly different arrangements. And as we said before, you've let certain like vocal parts kind of trim the fat a little bit, so there's more space for the instrumentation. Was it kind of hard to find a balance between like staying true to the original whilst also modernizing it for for today? Yeah, I don't think so at all because it is really just like little nuances, right? I think the one that really threw a curveball at me was the end of Prize Fighter. There's this like big open like rock vocal, mm. and, and it kind of goes into like you know a part that like continues and like the vocal keeps going. And Keith totally changed it. And after like the open rock vocal, it kind of goes into this like crazy like metal death metal like blast beat. Which the first time I heard it, I was like, "Well, that's like a bit much of a change for me," but after hearing it a few times, I was like, this is actually like really, really cool. I like this a lot. And so just, you know, just adapting to that, like changing like vocally what I would do over that. Cause I think that was one of my more favorite parts in the song. So I'm taking like one of my favorite parts and like not executing it how I yep. would naturally want to. So that was a little bit different for me, but otherwise I don't think so. I think I wasn't too afraid to like pull out vocals where I felt like they just weren't needed. Like I said, or yeah, just whatever felt best for the song and like gave the song like a rebirth without like a full on makeover. Yeah. I mean, you talk about that end of prize fighter. Like I've, I've listened to vanity for for years and years. So when I went and listened to this re-recording, like you say that double bass just came in. I was like, fuck, (laughs) I didn't expect it, but it just worked, which is strange because the original just isn't like that. Yeah. And that's cool. Like keeping people like guessing, right? Like, and I I think what works for the re-recording is that vocally for me, it is just like, I'm just such a better singer now than I was back then. And I know my voice a lot, a lot better now. And musically everything can really be like super tight sonically. 
uh, just because of the capabilities now. And it feels like a new product, right? And I've heard like re-recordings in the past and I felt like, and maybe a lot of people feel this way too, that, that Vanity didn't need to be re-recorded. Um, and that's totally fine and fair. And I totally understand that. But I'll hear, I'll hear re-recordings and sonically, the recording is not much different than the original. It's just tweaking little parts and little vocals here and there, which throws me off because I'm listening to almost virtually the same quality of recording, yeah. but tweaked songs, right? And so if I'm going to hear a re-recording, I want the recording quality to be like, if the original's here, I want the, the new recording to be just like yeah. leaps and bounds better. Well, right? What's the point? Exactly. So yeah. for, for, for me, like, I feel like, it, you know, we really were able to give the record like a full on like rebirth. And I guess like putting this album out again, I, I mean, I personally didn't see any like it coming. It just, I just saw my Spotify one day. I was like, oh, Vanity 2022, what's this? And I guess, you know, you're going to have a few fans that kind of joined you from the comeback onwards who may not have necessarily like dived into what you've done beforehand. Did, have you kind of like noticed when you look at your like stream stats and stuff, if fans have been kind of playing the, the re-recording more than the original, or have you noticed like a trend where fans are kind of going back after finding out this new vanity is out? I haven't even like looked at like statistics. Um, I mean, I don't really care, you know, I would imagine, I mean, me, I would want to listen to a better quality product personally. I think it's why I have a hard time listening to a lot of bands I grew up listening to in the mid early mid nineties is the recording qualities are so bad that like <laughs> it makes it hard to listen to them sometimes, you know? So, I mean, as a listener, I would want to listen to the, the new polished recording, right. Versus like the old recording. But, you know, for those that like want to hold on to that, the old recording and the nostalgia of it, that's, you know, I totally, totally get that. As far as like new fans, like rediscovering like the old catalog, I don't really know how many new fans we have, you know, to be honest with you, that are that are just now discovering the band. And I feel like if they are discovering the band right now, it, they're discovering it because of Vanity or Until the Ink Runs Out or Tower of Snakes and Obsession. They're not discovering the band off of like Inferno or the 1996 release or even like the comeback record 18 that we did. They're 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 finding the band because of the old stuff because they go to shows and they're part of like the hardcore community and, you know, people have talked about us or we just came through and they missed the show or, you know, they just saw the show for the first time and they're going to go check it out. And they're probably going to go and listen to like the newest release, right. Which would be vanity. I would imagine. So, yeah. And, you know, we, we talked about it briefly before we kind of started the, the interview, but you're not long come back off a tour for the 20th anniversary of Vanity, where you perform most of the songs live as well. What was it kind of like revisiting all those songs live back to back every night? And, you know, 20 years on, how how are the fans even taken to it in a live setting? Uh, live setting for the fans, I think, was really cool because they could anticipate which song was next because we just played mm -hmm. them straight through. Yeah, uh, We didn't like rearrange the set. There's a couple songs in there that are like really, really tough for me to sing. Like the critic was one of them, and I think a sh a short walk. Those two are like really, really hard. I think they might even be back to back. And so that was the point in the set where it just started to get a little bit difficult. And again, it just goes back to like how many parts vocally I wrote on those songs, right? Without giving myself a chance to breathe. So. If I could, I would have like rearranged the set accordingly. I would yeah. like play one of the songs first and like maybe put the other one in between like two easy songs. But there's something about just playing the record front to back or start to finish, which is like really, really cool. Yeah. I mean, I saw Block Party a few years ago and they played their album Silent Alarm for like at like a 10 year anniversary or something. And they just played it in a jumbled order. And I was just like so confused as to yeah. what was going on. I think Poison the Well did that too uh, with Opposite and where uh, I saw a set, I think it was in Las Vegas. We played a festival with them and it was not in order as well. I don't, it, I don't recall at least. And right. I would have, I would have liked it to be, but I understand why as a band, you wouldn't want it to be 
you kind of want to like mix things up and like yeah. keep different for yourself or you know like i said maybe some songs are harder live than others for the vocalists um and you got to cater to that too yeah especially if you're doing like a full tour like like you did yeah. you've got to kind of preserve your voice so you can actually do those next shows oh yeah big time yeah. so you know 20 years has passed a lot's changed you know it kind of seems like vanity's kind of not only stood the test of time, but now you've kind of revitalized it. You've revived the album. And obviously people are still streaming it. They're still buying the record. So it's still making an impact. When you look back at Vanity, how do you kind of look at it? And what are you most proud of with Vanity and what it's done for you? Uh, I think I'm most proud of the fact that we just didn't limit ourselves um, as like musicians and songwriters. We just went for it. We weren't afraid. You know, we were never afraid to do different things. I think that that's what I'm most proud of because it just, it kept us from like handcuffing ourselves to a certain sound or style. You know, we, we weren't afraid to like blend other genres with metal and hardcore. And I think that that's, yeah, it's something that back then I was, I was really, really stoked on and, and looking back still like really happy with the way we approached that. And I think we've approached every record since that way. Yeah. regardless of how it sounds um, i know inferno sounds way heavier and way more aggressive way darker which was fun but we just that's what we wanted to do at the time you know we yeah. we nothing has ever been forced it's just been like hey i wrote these songs and let's record them you know and even like not trying to stay within the box and kind of pushing boundaries not only grows you as a as a band and the genre as well but you as people i suppose yeah for sure absolutely yeah. So away from Vanity, what's happening with 18 Visions right now? Is there any plans for new music? Uh, we started working on new music quite a while ago. We've actually, I feel like we took two, two breaks with it almost. We did like, we had some new, new songs written and recorded. And then Keith got wrapped up in cover songs. And so we did the 1996. That song was the 1996 track itself. The music was already written for something else. And then I just lyrically wrote something that was fitting for like the whole like 1996 vibe of it, right? The 90s, something I experienced in my life in the 90s and like versus like the stuff that I was working on at the time vocally and lyrically was uh, more conceptual. So we took a break with that and then we started back up with that and then Josh was like, Hey guys, uh, these tour dates we're talking about doing, you know, it's, it's 20 years of vanity, right? We're like, shit, no, he's like, Oh, we should do vanity tour. And so we did that. And then that put the brakes again on the new music we were working on. Uh, so we could go and record that stuff. And I imagine we'll probably get back in relatively soon to finish right. that. And how's that kind of shaping up? I mean, I guess there's not a lot you want to tell too much of, but is it heavy? Is it light? Is it going in like a, an EP direction? Are you going an album direction? Is it conceptual like Inferno was? Yeah, I think it's safe to say that everything from this point forward will probably be pretty heavy in one way or another. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, it doesn't feel like, it definitely doesn't feel like uh, like the more melodic side of obsession or vanity. Right. Yeah. And other than the new music, is there anything else currently planned either this year or 2023 for 18 Visions at the moment? Uh, no, nothing. I think we're just trying to collect ourselves after all these shows. Yeah. yeah. Got to get that vinyl out too, waiting on that. So that's just December, January at the moment, isn't it? That you're looking Most at? Most likely based on the, based on the uh, timetables that everyone's given, you know, turn around. I think every band is like, I think I bought something in, may and it was like ships in january you know? <laughs> yeah I, I got i got one sent to me yesterday well it finally arrived yesterday and i ordered it in june last year so i yeah. waited over a year yeah so, uh, it, it is what it is yeah i think everybody kind of knows that that's just the nature of the game right now you yeah. know that you like the vinyl industry is just so the demand is so there for these factories that print and they're yeah. so absolutely slammed with orders. And, you know, we put in all orders. We're doing like 500 units. Picture a band, a, a, you know, a band that back in the day would have sold 2 million copies. You know, they're printing like 10,000 units, maybe, you know, 5,000 units. And it's just so many orders and everything's just so like backlogged. And it's just, it is what it is. I think everybody's just kind of gotten used to it. But yeah. it just makes it harder to 
release a physical product and the actual music for streaming at the same time. Yeah. Hard to plan. Yeah. Yeah. Because imagine if you tried to plan it so that this vinyl came out at the same time that this re-recording came out and at the same time you did this tour, like you would have had to put that order in months ago, which means months ago the re-recording would have to have been ready. Yeah. It's just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot for your time, James. I really do appreciate it. Unpacking Vanity, which obviously was a big impactful album for you guys and for you, for me, for other fans as well. So I'm sure they'll hopefully take something out of this, uh, this chat I've had with you. Before I let you go and enjoy the rest of your day off, have you got any final words, anything you want to plug, anything you want to say? Uh, bury me face down so the world can kiss my ass. <laughs> Those would be my final words on my gravestone. <laughs> insightful, insightful. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just kidding. No, I don't ever have final words, usually. That's cool, yeah. I'll let you go. Enjoy the rest of your day, awesome. dude. Thanks. Take care. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode please consider supporting the podcast in any way that you can. We have a Patreon where you can get access to each episode a week early, along with some other perks, a merch store, or you can leave a review wherever you're listening to this. You can also follow me on social media or subscribe to the newsletter where I'll send out each episode to you via email, along with regular playlists. All of this can be found at itsnotaphase.co.uk. That's itsnotaphase.co.uk. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's not a phase, it's a lifestyle.